everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange we like to start by asking what are you thinking and this week we're going to be thinking and chatting with the incredible Ellie from VDS Training. Ellie is a small animal vet who's currently undertaking a PhD researching the role communication plays in the delivery of safe, effective veterinary care. Ellie is passionate about supporting vet teams develop the communication practices they need to achieve not only high workplace performance, but also fulfilling happy careers. And who doesn't like the sound of that? We want to say a massive thank you to VDS and VDS Training for supporting the podcast this week. VDS Training offers a range of courses for all employees of veterinary practices, from nurses and receptionists to practice managers, assistants and experienced practitioners. So really everyone is involved. So do check out um, VDS and VDS Training and all that they have to offer. There were so many standout parts of the episode this week and I'm really excited for you to hear the chat with Ellie. What I particularly liked the, f- the focus on the fact that we should stop looking inwards when we're trying to place blame or responsibility for something that's gone wrong in veterinary practice. Really, we need to accept that we have a shared responsibility for the outcomes and, and no one person is to blame if something does go wrong and, and we are human, remember. So, um, you know, sometimes that will happen despite our best intentions. I also love the focus on taking time, making time to talk as teams, not just about the professional day-to-day stuff, but actually building relationships so that we can truly understand each other better. In our clinical segment this week, we start a series of discussions about the investigation of liver disease. And this week, we're going to start talking about those pesky liver enzymes. Okay, so um, welcome, um, Ellie, to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us um, again today. <laughs> full, full disclosure, this might, this might be take two. Um, anyway, lovely to have you with us. I wonder if you can start um, for our listeners just by introducing um, yourself and telling us a little bit about your um, veterinary background. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, really good to, uh, to to talk with you again. Thanks for inviting me to be on the podcast. So I'm I'm Ellie and my background, I guess my kind of veterinary journey is that I qualified in 2002 mm-hmm. and uh, worked as a small animal vet, mainly in first opinion practice and done... Um, little bits of locoming, done some out of hours locoming. And then sort of after about 15 or so years in practice, I did a um, cert AVP in small animal surgery, really enjoyed doing quite a lot of orthopedic surgery at that time. I can't actually believe that I'm hearing myself. Um, and it was coming towards the end of doing my cert AVP that I then got really interested in veterinary patient safety and had the opportunity to start doing a research master's looking at communication problems in practice which are kind of big part of um, of patient safety And through that, I was kind of lucky enough to get involved with working with the VDS training team, turned my 
master's into a PhD uh, for my sins and I'm just coming to the end of, of writing up um, my PhD which has been looking at communication and veterinary patient safety. So quite heavily involved now in the BDS's VetSafe platform and trying to build training and support around that to help people um yeah help 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 people make uh just make life and practice easier and reduce the chance of mistakes and kind of manage risk a little bit better i understand i mean it's interesting you're saying you know i understand the that clearly you know as a you know someone who maybe did a lot of surgery you completely are aware of um you know patient safety and communication like you were saying I mean I think that probably does creep into all of our kind of understanding of what makes things go better and worse but I think it's really interesting so it's one thing being aware of that but then it's a completely other thing than taking this leap and actually doing that as like your job so I'm interested to understand where where does that transition happen you know what I mean like it's one thing thinking something but then it's another thing actually doing something and going off in this completely different direction yeah I guess I'm just really curious and this I guess I sort of hit this point where my experience in practice really kind of matched up with some of the stuff that I was reading about around patient safety. So I just really kind of vividly remember going into practice with this like, right, today is going to be a good day. I've got my plan. I've, you know, got everything kind of set up. I've thought really carefully about how to manage the ops boards and like, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of nail this. Mm. And Sounds like every day in practice is a car crash, which it absolutely wasn't. But just that sense of like, how does stuff like unravel? Yeah. Even though you've kind of you've got this plan and you've thought it all through, and um, I got kind of really fascinated in in how things kind of all fit together to to mean that you know actually we end up doing something we really really didn't intend to do we have an outcome that is quite a long way from what we hoped um so I think it was the fact that it just really resonated with my experiences in practice and I really passionately wanted to kind of bring some of the insights from from that you know that whole kind of field of of veterinary patient safety and and human factors to help people realize it's not like it's not us it's not just because we're Mm. like being you know doing something wrong or we're not good enough that actually there's a there's a kind of science behind why stuff doesn't always go right and doesn't always go the way that that we intended um so I really wanted to kind of share that with other people I guess yeah and then actually I think amazing to then go on and to to take that a step further and to to do the PhD and I think it's really inspiring and people particularly doing PhDs that are not um sort of the typical science PhDs that sorry that that's I've misspoken there because what you're doing is still scientific but it's just it's not bench top you know as you know it's it's a it's just a really lovely way of kind of broadening our horizons as far as PhDs go are do you um 
do you speak kindly, positively about your PhD? Or are you in this kind of rancid write-up mode where you just hate it? Or what's happening? I love that. I love the rancid write-up. <laughs> like, it's such a bonkers journey, I think. Yeah. It's just the sort of peaks and troughs are sort of really, really big. I I love my PhD and I'm so grateful to have kind of had the opportunity to do it and, and my supervisory team have been been absolutely brilliant um it's really hard mm-hmm. like it's definitely harder than I thought it was going to be I, I don't know if it was harder than I thought it was going to be it's definitely tough and I think just yeah getting that kind of thesis over the finish line is definitely a thing that is difficult mm-hmm. um but I will never be sorry that I've done it good yeah no it's um yeah it's it, if it was easy then what is it everyone would do it right so it's got to be challenging in some way so I, I suppose I'm all just going back to your kind of that decision to kind of move out of clinical practice am I am I right in saying that you don't do any clinical practice now is that right yeah no I, I don't so I had a, a sort of period of time where I did a little bit so I was doing some um sort of weekend emergency work which which I really liked and I think actually it was really important that I still was as I kind of started that research because although although I've been in practice for you know a long time I think there's still something really nice about kind of being in clinical work whilst mm. just starting to kind of think about this stuff from a research point of view yeah. Um, but yeah but I'm but I'm not now so I stopped kind of the pandemic sort of made that decision for me so I was just mm. sort of thinking oh maybe actually I can't quite manage these weekends I was starting to not feel confident enough because I wasn't doing mm-hmm. very much clinical work and sort of like you know doing two or three weeks research and then going to do mm-hmm. a full weekend of emergency work it's like ah this is quite difficult so I was just thinking that maybe I, I wouldn't carry on with that and then um COVID struck and um I was furloughed I was trying to remember the word there yeah furloughed that was it furloughed um, yeah furloughed that, mm, that thing mm-hmm. um and and then I was like oh do you know what actually that's just kind of made my decision for me so I think because I think a lot of people do get to I think I can speak for a lot of people and say that, you know, people get to a, a point in clinical practice where they are looking for alternatives, you know, they're, they're diversifying in some way. Obviously, this is your amazing version of that. If 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 this stuff hadn't come along in the way that it did for you or you hadn't explored, do you think you would have? do you think you would have made a decision to do something beyond clinical practice regardless or do you think you would have kind of stayed stayed the course yeah I I don't I don't know that's a really good question I think I I was very kind of actively I wasn't necessarily actively looking for a for a different job or to leave clinical practice um but I was definitely looking for something a bit different to sort of yeah kind of stimulate my mind or kind of get stuck Mm -hmm. into and I think just increasingly sort of going through my career getting more and more interested in like people and how we work as people within practice and that side of things rather than the clinical side of things um and so I think it was kind of coming off doing my um certificate which was you know 
really clinical I was like well that was great I did really enjoy that but actually it's not it's not quite what I want to be looking at I really want to be looking at sort of people and how we work in practice um so I wasn't trying to get out of clinical practice no. I was definitely looking for other things and I, I think though that that you know I suppose my question comes back to the fact that a lot of people and and I'm, there's no again there's no hiding this you know we've we're you know it's it's quite um something that we're talking about more and more people do become sort of dissatisfied in some way with clinical practice and I'm not saying that that's you I'm just saying that actually a lot of the work that you're doing now is not just about firefighting when the problems occur right it's about actually trying to look at why um people struggle in practice and maybe improving that experience for them um what I hope that's representative of what you're doing <laughs> with that in mind and and I suppose coming out of your your PhD you know as you are now what's your goal what are you really trying to achieve for the profession and what what is the 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 thing that you're trying to to, to ultimately change in a good way that's yeah that's a big that's quite a big question um Sorry. okay no, no, let's no, no, break no. it let's break it down <laughs> All questions. um no I think what what I think really matters is that we shift away from how much we value kind of clinical work this idea that we there's a there's a right way and a wrong way of doing things and that our sort of value as individuals is you know do we have the answers to that and do we have the kind of technical skills to do those things and to move towards sort of realizing that clinical work is really complex and really kind of messy and we need each other we need really effective sort of teamwork to get through that and a lot of that relies on relationships and how we talk with each other and how we um, treat each other and that we need to sort of value that as a really important important part of our work um, and if we if we don't sort of spend time going actually we need to work on how how we are as a team we need to reflect on the way that we do our work together um, then we're going to keep experiencing as individuals that like it's really difficult and it's really tough and stuff goes wrong and we don't feel good about ourselves mm -hmm. um, so I think it's that sort of shifting it, it to it's about how we are together there's not one right answer we have to sort of keep working on our relationships with each other and keep working on improving how we're working all the time. I think that's really interesting because actually it <laughs> oh it's going to sound cheesy but it's that kind of it's that kind of looking in like I I love the the, the fact that you're the the thing that came out of what you just said there was really actually we need to look ourselves and our relationship with our colleagues so you didn't mention clients or any of the other sort of outside stuff I don't know that's important too but what's interesting is I think 
maybe at the moment it's all you know it's it's because the clients are so demanding and you know and like you say it's messy there's so many different bits but actually maybe the best place to start is actually just looking at ourselves and the and the team that we're in and actually making that the best version of what it is you know it can be you know and that 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 was for me that was the, the the message that came out of what you just said yeah definitely and it's interesting about the kind of clients and you know from the work that that we do with with teams like that's a massive pain point for people it's really difficult and I don't think we're alone as an industry in Mm. in just finding clients and the kind of general public just really challenging at the moment and I I sort of say at the moment hesitantly really because I you know I think there's a tendency to think this is some kind of COVID hangover I don't think it is I I think this is just a kind of change to some extent in sort of how people are and I don't really know why that is or sort of where that's coming from Mm -hmm. um so I've really kind of recognized what a sort of challenge that is but sort of coming back to the sort of research when I sort of started looking at the communication problems that were kind of cropping up in practice and kind of compared that with you know how we think about communication in the vet practice and the sort of training that we have we're really sort of traditionally slanted towards thinking communication is it's all about what we do with the client Mm -hmm. it's all about client satisfaction quite a lot of the early research sort of stems from looking at how we improve business outcomes in practice so how do we get clients to um, take up the treatment suggestions and kind of compliance so it's really kind of heavily focused on that kind of client satisfaction and kind of business success side of things not so much on like how does how we communicate impact the outcomes that our patients get Mm -hmm. and that I think is something that matters massively to people in practice you know we want yes we want to deliver a great service to our clients of course we do and that's a really and it can be a really rewarding part of our job um but we really really want to make sure that the care that we deliver to our patients is you know first and foremost safe so Mm -hmm. avoids unintentional harm um and that actually is much more based on how we kind of communicate with each other within the team so i think that's why that kind of took me down that route Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and I suppose there's 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 an element there of, you know, controlling or or changing the things that are changeable, controllable. Like you know, I I love this I love this description of this. You said messy, but it's messy. And the minute you get more than one person in a room, it's messy. Yeah. <laughs> like you know, like the minute you bring two people together and then another person and then like just the messiness of the world, like it's just. Involving lots of people gets messy, right? So I think the minute you have a healthcare profession where there's people and animals, it's always going to have a degree of messiness about it. Would you say that? And, and some of that you can't control. Absolutely, and and so kind of quite a lot of this goes back to what you were saying about is what you're doing really science, and is so we we've got quite a kind of. Um, 
particular view of kind of like what science is and it's quite kind of quantitative and quite kind of hard and definite and we're looking for you know um we're all looking at the same external thing and we've got to control observer bias and all of that sort of stuff mm-hmm. and going back to all of that sort of messiness you know my PhD is is much more kind of qualitative so it's using kind of social science approaches because of exactly what you've said that actually when you take people and you you know you stick them together in a practice system um it's 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 kind of you know culture those sorts of things you've got to kind of study and look at in in kind of a completely different way um and so I got really interested in uh something called complexity theory which really talks about why stuff is messy and how that's quite different from the sort of more kind of linear mechanical ways of understanding the world that we kind of inherit from our you know kind of medical scientific training um and so rather than trying to like solve that messiness it's about finding ways to sort of help teams to navigate that together rather than thinking we've you know we've got to just fix it all it's like no you know this is what it's like you know we've got different people animals do different things it's there's all these Mm. cultural things going on so it's how how can we work with that to help teams to sort of navigate that and I think and again I don't want to put words in your mouth but I think this is something that I have thought about a lot myself as I've kind of struggled with various different things in this in my own career I spent a lot of time thinking, God, this this must be to, my struggles must be because of me, and it, you know, because I'm not coping because I see other people and they're doing the same job as me, and they're coping. And actually, now I understand that, first of all, you can never judge a book by its cover. Second of all, um, actually, I, some of what we are challenged with, as you say, some of it we're not able to change, and it's about how we navigate that better, you know. And and I think that. But we are fixers, and I think that can be pathological. <laughs> and I think, but just just going back to that though, I think you know I've worked in environments where there's been problems, and clearly it's messy. I love this; it's just messy. It's all messy. <laughs> I know. I feel like but... that's the outcome of my PhD. <laughs> it's it's all a bit messy and difficult but I but I, but I love that but I but I don't like, yeah but but what I love about it is you're sort of it's it's but there's got there's a realization there that's important that that's yeah. but, but so yeah so let's so you know I've been in lots of messy situations and practices and and what I have found actually on a number of occasions is that the an individual is blamed so yeah. someone will be uh, focused in on as a, the problem a problem a problematic person yeah. and I've seen on a number of occasions people being removed from from situations because the 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 conclusion is that they are the problem and it's not really that messy yeah. do you think do you think that that is the case do you think that the individual people are the issue or do you think that it's a much wider problem that actually it's not just about one person yeah it's always going to be a bit both isn't it I think so so it is the case that there are so if we there is the case that's going to be you know 
particular people who are, might be doing something that's difficult for the people around them or thinking about another sort of component of the system there's a particular work process that isn't working mm -hmm. but what we tend to do because of the way that we've been sort of trained to think is we do we break things down into these individual bits so we go right it's that person or it's that step in the sort of care process that's a problem we're going to fix that but the problem is is that it's when you put all of those bits back together and they start to interact that you actually kind of get that that sort of messiness so that one person might be like that on that day or in that practice with those people around them they might be completely different in a different situation um but we're really great at going like that's that's the one problem we're going to kind of blame that one person because it's just much easier yeah, um yeah. and we're also you know we've got a lot of kind of structures that are make us look at things on quite an individual level so you know like we tend to be trained individually when we're going through kind of education you know we are we're assessed individually mm -hmm. and even when we look at kind of competencies like sort of teamwork and collaboration competencies which are all you know within the rcbs day one competencies you're still assessed on that as an individual Mm -hmm. regulated as individuals but actually a lot of what we do like how it goes depends on the interaction between us not us as individuals but we haven't got any very good frameworks for kind of looking at kind of collective competencies or collective actions mm. rather than individualistic um and it depends how deep you want to go I mean that's quite a kind of western thing as well to be quite a kind of individualistic society rather than being more um you know based on communities and collective actions um Gosh. so i think it, it yeah that's but that's the but, but that's <laughs> again <laughs> no but, but one of those things where like as you're speaking i'm like mm. like you know just when you think about it in that sort of way where we are everything we do is very although we work in big teams it's all individual assessment you know you're filling out individual the you know it's it's all really just about yeah it's really that's why you're in the position you're in and you're clever and have done a PhD because you I mean that's very cool I mean when you think about it in that way and then I love that taking it to kind of societal level and actually yeah because if you if we were in Japan our structure would be completely different and the way we view our family and the way we treat yeah. our family and you know I, Karen's been to Japan she, you know she's a fan that's why it came into my mind but <laughs> um but so it, it but it is isn't it it's a totally different social sort of structure that's that's super that's super interesting actually I think um so you know what kind of comes away from all of this for me conversations with with you and with your colleagues you know at, at the VDS but also in other organizations um your names come up um in a number of other podcasts actually um people mentioning that you are inspiring so there's a lot you know a lot of different people working together in different ways um it, it, trying to really improve our profession which is uh, hugely um important and admirable I would and I don't want to be controversial but I would say to you that you know if you spend any time on social media which I advise that you don't um <laughs> then 
I spend far more than I should already. Yeah, yeah. well, you know, I, I, so, you know, and all that not the, going well. <laughs> <laughs> the, you know, the veterinary community is is vocal often, I think, about the challenges that are out there. And and I'm not I, I'm that, you know, people have got to be able to express how they feel and, and you know, and and but I would say that when you look at the kind of sphere, the veterinary sphere, it, it sometimes feels that things are not getting better or th that we're, you know, uh, so my question to you is with all the amazing work that's being done, do you feel like some of these challenges are going in the right direction or do you still think there's just a lot of stuff that we have to kind of wade through? I think it's, it's, it's difficult. I, I think I see increasing increasing kind of conversations around I hate sort of talking about non-technical skills like defining them as what they're not um, mm. but they're not soft skills so yeah we haven't got a good kind of word for that but I guess the people side of practice you know do see increasing I think kind of conversations and recognition that that's important we need to work on it which is which is great I think the challenge is again going back to the sort of individual thing you know and if, if we sort of think about um like resilience I guess is a kind of you know hot topic at the moment again it's quite easy for us to put the um weight of this on individuals like you need to build your resilience mm. and we need to do stuff to make you mm. more able more, to kind mm -hmm. of more resilient um and sometimes what that, that's doing is just meaning that actually individuals and their resilience and their ability to cope is kind of compensating for this kind of bigger system that actually isn't doing what it needs to do so I think shifting responsibility towards you know how how can we get kind of organizations and the whole practice you know the whole profession to take more yeah, more responsibility, I'm going to use that word, for building systems that people can be well and healthy and happy working in. And I um, think that's, and how true is that? Because I think it's it's actually a huge burden to put on an individual because I think, and I certainly, again, can really relate to that, where there's only so much personal growth that I think an individual can do to become more resilient or cope better or meditate there's only so many moments of meditation and did you know what I mean like really like yeah. I can't there's no more I can do but, and that's certainly how I felt at one stage where I was like I'm not sure that I can do any more of yeah. helping myself you know and I think that's why the system and responsibility does have to go higher up, doesn't it? You know, it does have to come, particularly in this kind of corporate veterinary world that we kind of find yeah. ourselves in. I think there's no magic bullet, as uh, you know, as I'm sure you know more than better than than the most. I, I suppose my, if I, you know, I it, interested though, if you were able to potentially based on the the research and the work that you've done. If you did have a magic wand and you were able to change one thing now, what oh. would that? Oh God, is that too? too, too <laughs> God, don't am I like ah! completely, completely terrified at that question? <laughs> so you've got a magic wand and you can change one thing. What's it going to be? <laughs> I, I don't know how you do it, but I think it is this 
switch from focusing on individuals to focusing on like collective action. Mm. And I think that that probably needs to come through in the way that we're, you know, certainly kind of complaints, um, regulation, you know, how we're regulated, all of that sort of needs to, to shift to looking at how stuff is happening collectively rather than just focusing on individuals. And it probably involves some um, educational changes and assessment changes as well. It also involves us, you know, changing how we sort of think and, and trying to get away from this sort of, it's all on me, it's all down to me and, and kind of quite myopic focus. Um, and, I, you know, I think go back to like, it's, there's a lot to do and that can just feel really overwhelming. I think it is going, and I guess in a way my sort of PhD has taught me this a bit as well is like a PhD is a tiny little brick in a wall of kind of knowledge and I guess you know that's sort of big problems that people are finding in the profession it's going well this is my this is going to be my little contribution or little area yeah. this is the sort of one piece of the jigsaw that I can kind of work on and a bit what you were sort of saying control the controllables so sort I'm of trying not to get overwhelmed and be like well I, I can hopefully do do this thing um and so, you know, through the work that we do with CDS training and hopefully particularly trying to help teams use like the VetSafe platform to learn as collectively as a team and build systems where they can be, you know, do the work they want to do, be happier, be healthier, deliver safer care. That's like, that's my little bit of the jigsaw that I'm going to focus on for now and hope yeah. that that you know that's all that's all we can kind of do I think isn't it 100% and I think I I, I don't uh, also I've never heard someone articulate this stuff about you know moving away from this myopic view of the individual in quite in the way that you have today so I have found that honestly really enlightening actually and and sometimes it's not it's not necessarily about coming up with like this like you know mind-blowing invention or change of you know it's just about thinking about the things that we probably inherently know inside but actually just you know articulating them in a way that that makes sense and that certainly does to me today I, I think that's really really valuable so what what's now what what's next for you what are you what's sort of if, if you know you've let's get over the the writing up stuff so once you've done all that what's your what's next for you as an individual yeah, so I think um, really enjoying just doing my VDS training job and not okay. doing a PhD at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, so that I can also like my 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 family just fantastically supportive through the whole sort of PhD. Um, my so I've got three sons and the sorts of conversations like I'm glad you found what we've talked about enlightening Scott I can guarantee that my three sons do not <laughs> what age what age are they this is important or interesting or anything uh so they are 9 11 and 14 I mean just so like you, what I, is mum banging on about now would you please just stop oh <laughs> I think you okay I think but that's an age where they've got opinions yeah and they're not interested in any of this stuff that we we're talking about today <laughs> Not like at all. So I think that's that's a challenging three sons at that age. I can imagine that they are not that motivated by what you're saying. 
not, not hugely interested. They're just, oh, mum's banging on about some communication stuff again. Well, um, maybe get them to listen to this. I don't know. We'll, yeah. mm-hmm. we'll, what, we, what can we talk about that's relevant to them? Something to do with computer games? I don't know. Um, that's the only thing I can think of. Um, so, yeah, so the... I love that you know I, I'm looking forward to just doing my job actually and 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 I take from that that you enjoy your job hopefully so it's it's nice that you can just get back to focusing on that and not have uh, you know the the PhD hanging over you um people have mentioned you on the podcast before um uh particularly um because of the some of the work you do being um certainly inspiring um I wondered if you could share with us um who inspires you oh. so yeah I, I was kind of thinking about this earlier and I was sort of trying to think about one kind of name um of some yeah so I've come across I suppose on this kind of journey and I guess the one that sprung into my mind was this lady called Suzette Woodward, who is a paediatric nurse who's gone on to do a um, huge amount of patient safety research and policy work in the NHS. And she, like, I, I heard her talk quite early on, um, sort of on this journey, and she's, she, I found her hugely inspiring. And mm-hmm. she talked about... Um, planting planting sort of planting trees that you won't see grow and this idea that you know you just have to do something that you believe in even though you, you you're not necessarily going to see the kind of contribution that that will have um but mm-hmm. you sort of do it do it nonetheless mm-hmm. um and she, she talks very much about how safety comes from the way that we treat each other and treating each other compassionately um, through, you know, through our work, looking after each other as we're working, which all sounds very, very fluffy, but actually, you know, I think we, we think we can sort of set up sort of safety or processes that, are, you know, will definitely work every time, but it always falls back onto that kind of collective teamwork and how we are with each other. Um, and I found that really inspiring. So yeah, so, so listening to her talk, I found really inspiring. I think you know, it's funny you say about that. That we have a lot of yeah, I'm doing inverted commas. We 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 maybe have a lot of sort of fluffy topic conversations on this podcast. But actually, one of the things that I've come to kind of understand is I think we need to we need to definitely not apologize about these topics because yeah. I don't I don't think they are like they're they're actually what we are learning is that they're not fluffy they're they're actually fundamental and 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 you know I still think sometimes we're like oh I'm going to say something and it's either cheesy or plumbing or whatever. and actually we should we should be like no no I'm saying this because it's really important and actually you know it's just because it's not clinical <laughs> like we think that it's not you know it's it, it's got it's lesser in some way but clearly you know and, and again through you know the work that you and others are doing we know that that's not not the case um Great, good answer. I'm going to go and Google her now. Um, so, um, okay, so just a, a couple of other questions that we ask our, our guests uh, towards the end of our um, chat. And one that what I think my new favourite one is, um, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> I don't want to grow up. 
yeah no mm. I just I want to I want to be happy and I want to have fun um and I want and I want to help people and sort of make make a difference um but yeah like don't you think that that's what you find out that no that there isn't isn't any kind of growing up you know if yeah. I don't I always forget at the moment how old I am I think I'm 44 or 45 but you know if, if I told my younger self about someone who's that age I think they were like ancient. a grow ancient but definitely mm-hmm. like a proper grown-up and I'm like what like I, when did you like when mm-hmm. did you become the grown-ups and I just get I, to the point that yeah I think I, I think but also I think when you're when you're in your 20s you're kind of generally immune to thinking about like age is really or aging is irrelevant I felt in my 20s but then just you know it does start to creep in when you're like 40 <laughs> you're like oh god oh, anyway yeah, yeah, oh god yeah. yeah but that's I think that's a sign of that this sounds like an insult a sign of not being 20 is um is is having is being like how now wait a minute till I work out how old I am like I do that as well I'm like mm, what mm. oh I need to calculate it yeah, yeah. yeah. anyway <laughs> yeah not growing up that sounds good um and as far as you know you you've spoken a lot about different people and and, and great bits of advice I think if you were to speaking to the people listening as far as kind of just uh, one bit of advice that that stand out for you what would that what would that advice be I think it's it's to stop looking inwards for you know where you're going to kind of place your blame or responsibility for everything and to accept that we achieve outcomes collectively between us us not Uh, just as a kind of individual so to try and like take the heat off a bit you know and and not sort of judge your own actions with you know quite the scrutiny that we sometimes do um and to really understand that that those you know relationships and how we do stuff collectively together is is super important um and so to to make time for teams to talk and, and not not just to talk about, you know, what's this team meeting about? What's, you know, we're doing a round about these patients, just to talk to each other. And to talk to each other, to build those relationships, to understand each other a bit better. Um, that That's quite a lot. That isn't one piece of advice. No, no, but I think it's there's a theme coming out here, which I really like, which is this kind of, you know, that well, the team's, the teams thing but but also just just shifting that blame from the individual and so I think no I think that's it's really really regardless of what your sons say I have been very inspired um so finally uh, finally 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 um um if you were to which vet school did you go to again I went to Cambridge Oh, fancy, uh, mm-hmm. fancy. Um, <laughs> the so if you were to go back to that moment of um, accepting that place at Cambridge Vet School, would you do that all again? Hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. Definitely, definitely would. Um, I was like super happy there. 
like through my career I've met such great people and worked in great teams and it like really is a kind of it's a privilege isn't it to look after people and look after their animals when they're in, in you know sometimes in a really really kind of bad place and mm-hmm. it's funny I know that I kind of focus so much on the importance of, of teams but like it is teams that then deliver that kind of great care for clients as well as as well mm-hmm. as um, pets you know we we think about that one conversation that we have with the client but they they've kind of seen everybody in the pet and they see how we mm-hmm. are with each other as well so but I think the privilege of, of yeah looking after looking after people when they're having a tough time um, and looking after their animals I am so pleased I've had the opportunity to do that um, and that it's then allowed me to yeah move into quite a different different area and mm. you know the fact that those opportunities are there if, if you go and find them is 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 brilliant well Thank you very much um, for taking the time to chat to us today. I've really enjoyed that. And I think that I've learned a huge amount. So I'm very, if no one else listens, I have learned lots. (laughs) In our clinical segment this week, we're going to start um, a series of discussions about the investigation of liver disease in cats and dogs. And I wanted to have a little bit of a focus on those scenarios where actually you're taking blood, sometimes for other reasons, for let's say pre-op bloods for a dental. And actually you end up discovering that there are liver enzyme increases that you didn't expect. So kind of those incidental increases in liver enzymes that then become kind of problematic because you've got a dog or a cat maybe that doesn't have any clinical signs of liver disease but you don't or that you then have to make a decision about what to do about these almost incidental liver enzyme increases so a little bit of a focus on that so i think the first thing to to pay tribute to is the fact that the liver is a really cool organ and it does lots of very important things you know it has a role in immunoregulation it has a a role of storing vitamins it detoxifies stuff and it has a digestive function it has a role in metabolism and it also has this massive regenerative capacity the other really amazing unique thing about the liver is its blood supply so it has a a hepatic artery that um, goes into it and it has a hepatic vein that comes out of it and so most organs will have a main artery that goes into it and then a vein that goes out of it but the the interesting thing about the liver it also has this portal vein going into it Um, and that portal vein brings basically the blood from the gastrointestinal system mainly and that is taken through the liver for that kind of detoxification process. And so that's a unique part of the liver that it's it's taking on this blood from other organs um, and, and dealing with that blood in a, a variety of different ways. As I mentioned, one of the really important things to remember is this massive regenerative capacity of the liver. And although having a massive regenerative capacity capacity is really good and helpful it means that actually it can affect the way that clinical signs manifest right so you 
might not see clinical signs until very late on in disease because it's done such a good job of kind of keeping up with things. And early signs of disease may be very non-specific. There are very or, or more specific signs of liver disease, such as icterus or ascites or bleeding tendencies, hypoglycemia, hepatic encephalopathy. But actually, many of those more specific liver-associated clinical signs actually happen quite late on. So a good example of that would be, you know, if you're hypoglycemic because your liver is failing, you need to have lost around 80% of liver function loss to start to dysregulate um, glucose because of liver failure. So you're you're pretty far down the line. You need to have depleted quite a lot of clotting factors to start bleeding because of liver disease. So those signs are often more progressed. The signs that we see earlier on are very nonspecific and, you know, vomiting, diarrhea, lethargy, polyuria, polydipsia and inappetence can all be potential signs of liver disease, which are not necessarily that helpful. Okay, so when we're talking about, as I said, I, I want to kind of explore this idea of incidental increases in liver enzymes. And so let's start by talking about a case. So, so... Jack. Jack is a nine-year-old male neuter Labrador who has presented at the clinic because of moderate dental disease. So we're talking like a little bit of gingivitis, you know, a, a reasonable buildup of, of um, plaque or tartar. You can tell I don't do many dentals because I'm not, is that the right word for that? Anyway, sort of moderate dental disease, but the teeth aren't like falling out like some, you know, very old Yorkie where they literally just fall out themselves. So, I mean, moderate dental disease. Um, no other clinical signs. The owners are just bothered about the teeth. Um, and so they just want a routine dental, which you think probably will just be a scale and polish. And because it's a nine-year-old Labrador, you decide to take some bloods before the GA, which is, I think, very, very sensible. So the bloods reveal... Uh, a very mild non-regenerative anemia. So the hematocrit is um, just above 30. So it's a mild non-regenerative anemia. And a mild non-regenerative anemia really is a very common abnormality, um, usually secondary to something else, you know, usually secondary to some other inflammatory or, in, you know, infectious systemic disease. So that's not massively exciting. But when you take the biochemistry, the main abnormalities, in fact, the only abnormalities are to do with liver enzymes. So the ALT, and we're going to go on and talk about these in a bit more detail, the ALT is 644 with the top end of the reference being 125. The ALP is 1201 with the top end of the reference being 212. And the GGT is 20 with the top end of the reference being 11. So I would say moderate increases in ALT, ALP and GGT. And so probably in the grand scheme of things at that kind of level, particularly with the ALT being getting on for sort of five times the upper reference, probably not something we can just completely ignore. So when we're talking about liver enzymes, just to be more specific, we're talking about kind of four major enzymes. 
we're talking about um, ALT or alanine aminotransferase, AST, which is asper- um, aspartate aminotransferase. Get my tongue uh, my tongue in order. Um, alkaline phosphatase or ALP, uh, and GGT, which is gamma glutyl transferase. Which again, I always have to think about. So, ALT, AST, ALP, and GGT. To be honest, in real life, the majority of time we're talking about ALT and A, um, ALP. So ALT and ALP, they are the most common liver enzymes that we're going to be looking at kind of routinely. And generally speaking, um, you know, we AST and GGT do pop up, but I think on routine biochemistry, uh, less commonly. The first ground rule when we're talking about liver enzymes is that abnormal liver enzyme activity is significantly more common than primary liver disease. So just let that sink in. Abnormal liver enzyme activity is significantly more common than primary liver disease. So we are going to see liver enzyme increases that are not necessarily associated with actual primary liver pathology. And liver enzymes give no indication of liver function. So the fact that the ALT, the ALP, the AST, the GGT are increased, they do not tell you that the liver is dysfunctional. They tell you that the liver is not happy but they do not tell you that the the liver is dysfunctional. It might be inflamed, it might be, uh, you know, there might be neoplasia within the liver, but it doesn't mean that the liver is necessarily failing. And the other main point is that they're not, liver enzymes are not entirely liver specific. And so we can see increases in liver enzymes because of extrahepatic causes. So yes, infection, inflammation, neoplasia within the liver will cause increases in liver enzymes, but extrahepatic causes like pancreatitis, gastrointestinal disease, endocrine disease, uh, certain uh, drugs such as steroids, uh, growth, bone isoenzymes of ALP will all cause increases in liver enzymes too. So just to speak about these enzymes, um, just to finish up our section today, just to to speak about the enzymes a bit more specifically. So ALT um, or um, alanine aminotransferase um, is really a hepatocellular enzyme. So it's an indication of hepatocellular leakage. So it's within, this is an enzyme that's found within the hepatocytes. The highest concentrations in the body are found within the liver, but it's not specific completely to the liver. And we we see um, it coming from other places too, like muscle. Um, And it can be increased because of lots of conditions of the liver. So we see the largest increases with necrosis and inflammation within the liver, but can also see increase because of of neoplasia and and disease uh, within the biliary system. But it tends to be more hepatocellular it's a it's a hepatocellular enzyme um and you know it, people have sort of correlated it potentially with um you know can we correlate the the magnitude of the increase in ALT uh 
with um, the severity of disease. Um, I think that's difficult to definitively do. Um, but we do know that uh, a decrease in ALT, if, if the disease is resolving, can be a positive thing. I think also, though, the important thing to remember is that although decreases in liver enzymes may be an indication of disease resolution, we can actually see, because liver enzymes are not a marker of liver function, we can actually see liver enzyme decreases at, at, the, at the end stages of liver disease when actually the liver is dysfunctional. So yes, liver enzymes will go up when the liver is not happy, but actually sometimes in the later stages of disease, they will go down because the hepatocytes have literally lost their function to release anything. So it, the decline in liver enzymes is is often positive, but not always. So the other main enzyme that we spoke about was um, uh, ALP, and it's more of a, you know, we talked about ALT being hepatocellular. ALP, or alkaline phosphatase, is more cholestatic. So it's more kind of around the kind of biliary system, and it's attached to cell membranes. The main thing about ALP is the isoenzymes that, that um, exist. So we see the steroid-induced forms of ALP, the bone-induced forms of ALP uh, in growing dogs. And ALP is the most common abnormality on, on canine biochemical panels, but it's really got a very low specificity for liver disease. So yes, it increases with liver disease, but it will increase with so many other things. So that's really important, particularly uh, with ALP. And again, particularly with the kind of induction that we see with steroids and in, in growing animals. But we will uh, also see it with uh, disease of the liver, particularly uh, cholestatic uh, disorders. So just to finish up, um, we kind of have just delved into those liver enzymes a little a little bit. But uh, ultimately, we started our discussion today by talking about a, a, a older Labrador who had incidental liver enzyme increases when we did pre-general uh, anaesthetic bloods for a dental. Um, and I think, uh, you know, as far as what are, what's the first step in the investigation process um, of these particularly incidental liver enzymes? And I would say for me, the step number one is context is key. It, are these truly incidental increases? I would be going back to the owners and, um, you know, uh, just making sure that we're not missing anything from a kind of... Um, history uh, point of view um, making sure for instance that they are, there aren't clinical signs that they just didn't really um, mention the first time round or uh, going back you know through drug history and just making sure that there's nothing else in the history or, or you know physical examination that could be related to liver disease um, because I suppose, yeah, when I say context is key, for instance, I mean, we, we do seem to have a, a truly incidental situation with this dog, but clearly um, if the dog had been PUBD, PUPD for weeks and actually you find that uh, the dog has uh, got a high blood glucose and is diabetic, then obviously the, the liver enzymes are almost certainly secondary uh, to that. Um, or if you've had a, you know, a, 
a cat with um, actually uh, significant weight loss over the, 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 the last few months or weeks, then that changes the context of these um, liver enzyme increases. So step number one is, you know, context is key. Step number two, actually for me, when you are truly finding incidental increases in liver enzymes, then, you know, step number two is is to confirm the results. Demonstrate that the results are truly persistently increased by taking the blood at another time point, uh, potentially sending it to the reference lab if you haven't done that, and making sure that these are repeatable, consistent findings. That is absolutely um, key in uh, cases like this. I'll leave you with a thought. So I, I suppose we're, we're, we'll continue next week to to discuss this a little bit more or over the next few weeks, actually. But I think my question at the end of this session is, you know, we've talked about, you know, uh, context is key. We've talked about, you know, demonstrating that this is a persistent increase in liver enzymes, particularly in an, uh, an asymptomatic patient. I suppose my question that I'd leave you with today is, would you do the dental? You know, in a patient with liver enzyme increases, with no clinical signs of liver disease, yeah, would you do the dental? So I'll leave you with that thought today and we can maybe crack that open again next week. A massive thank you again to Ellie and to VDS Training for the incredible chats on the, the podcast this week. I wanted to say a, a massive thank you to all of you who are listening. Um, I, I And I really mean that. I never ever take for granted um, the opportunity we have to, to chat to some incredible people on the podcast. And um, I'm always so grateful that you turn up, tune in, uh, listen and support us in such an incredible way. So thank you. Um, we will continue next week with our great chats, hopefully, but also with our discussion on the investigation of liver disease. So I really hope you can join us again next time.